Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. We are offering three separate conversations from Wednesday night's episode, 14 Variable Machine Learning Model Identifies Probable Nash Patients from Electronic Health Records, not our shortest title to date. In this conversation, the surfers, Louise Campbell, Jorn Schottenberg, our guest Chris Cowdley, and I, ask what the model tells us about fatty liver disease and how applicable it might be to racial and ethnic minorities whose body types and diets might be different than model populations. NASHMAP is a special tool, the leading edge of our future, and you'll want to know about it. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. week, a global community of fatty liver disease stakeholders comes together to explore the most important challenges in diagnosing, treating, and developing medications for patients with fatty liver diseases. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Professor Yarn Schottenberg, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and this week's guest, hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Chris Cowdley, as they discuss Professor Schottenberg's recent paper on machine learning and NASH diagnosis. This week, on the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. I found it a fascinating read and I found it very interesting. I think when you replied earlier, you hit the point. It's not the enriched populations we want to find and the already diagnosed. It's actually the undiagnosed. Now, you mentioned that an additional 900,000 subjects were sort of identified that had a, a high probability of having NAFLD or NASH. Does the model give us an opportunity to look at cost modelling on those 900,000 at all. I think we've discussed it a lot on the podcast recently with Marvin, and I, I, I can just hear breaths being released in the NHS if we suddenly went to locate 900,000 and what the costs would be from that sort of side. So I think finding the patients is fantastic. People get concerned about that, but being able to look at the enriched population we can gauge through this being added to the AI, because I found its ability to diagnose was very good. Thank you, Louise, and point well taken. If you order additional tests on 900,000 patients at one moment in time, it's going to cause incremental costs. And for sure, you want to say that there's a benefit for the patient in ordering that additional test. So it has to have a consequence, I think. And that brings it back to the, the context of use, where, where would you want to use that and um, for what reason. I think you can look at that from different perspectives and uh, different contexts of use seem um, probable. I do see it right now as a potential tool for clinical trial enrichment where you say, I have a physician that's highly experienced diabetologist, never done studies in, in NASH, and we're really looking for somebody who contributes to our phase three trial. And if you uh, provide him with such a tool and he has an electronic healthcare record system, he, he can probably identify a fair number of patients that do qualify for additional testing to then be offered potentially enrollment in a clinical trial. So this is uh, a special situation that we are now at. In the future, hopefully, we'll have therapeutics um, that show a benefit for the patient. And I think then the whole story with regards to cost effectiveness of additional testing could be something you're discussing in a healthcare system. As you are highlighting it now, and importantly, this algorithm is not identifying patients with advanced fibrosis to NASH, which are close to a relevant liver endpoint that needs immediate treatment. It identifies patients with NASH, or probable NASH. And I think for those patients, I cannot advocate at this 
these days that we have to spend a lot of money diagnosing all these patients, potentially with invasive technologies, to then not be able to offer anything to them. So that's an important point. Can I also just ask, was there any FibroScan data available on these patients? Was there any other non-invasive technology apart from biopsy that could have been used for a real-world extrapolation in these patients? Uh, no, it was not. I can say that the NIDDK data span was 2002 to 2006, and the optum was covering 2007 to 2017. So that's 10 years. And for sure, there was some FibroScan data towards the end, but it wasn't available on this one. Luis, I went to the same place you did. In fact, where I went specifically was back three weeks in the podcast. Um, I don't think you were with us that week, but Ian Rowe was on talking about some of what they've learned in Leeds. And what they've learned is that a lot of the seeming intermediate tests that you would intuitively think might save you money don't. So they took a look at the value of ELF, for example, going FIB4 ELF FibroScan versus simply going FIB4 to FibroScan. And they looked separately at ultrasound the same way. And in both cases came to the conclusion that once you've got a decent reason to believe that the patient has, in this case, NAFL, like NASH even more so, you might go straight to elastography, confirm the case or not on KPAs, and know what needs to get treated or not. The logic being that where you got a positive test, that wasn't a surprise. And where you got a negative test, but other markers were strong enough, you tended to discount the negative test and go to FibroScan to confirm it anyway. So then why not just go straight to FibroScan? When I read this, and then when I heard Louise's question, even more so, I, I believe that over time, an algorithm like this should be the way that we screen who goes straight to elastography or, or some kind of more quantitative, more confirmatory measure short of biopsy using using NITs to their best outcome. Does that does that make sense? To me, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, and again, um, it's not capable of identifying patients with fibrosis. And I, I do see the FibroScan in, uh, in and as absolute strength to rule out cirrhosis and, and identifying patients. And, and the, the NASH map will, will highlight you patients with probable NASH. So I would think yes, because you do spend money on a FibroScan. And again, it might not be needed in a setting where you have a hepatologist or somebody experienced in diagnosing liver disease is as absolutely required. But it's a support tool that could run in the, in the back end of an electronic healthcare record system of a physician that hasn't a lot of experience in, in hepatology and, and support them. And there are areas in Germany, I'm sure there's in the US where there's a lot of uh, physicians retiring, not, no access to medical, particularly not to hepatology care. And I think in those settings, it can help you funnel patients, guide on their management. Do you think if these models, when they go out, if this can be used in primary care and throughout those data sets, even if it doesn't pick up NAFLD and NASH, even though it's got that high probability, because you excluded alcohol and all previous other diagnoses of liver disease, if this was put into a general population, would you expect to see it pick up considerably more liver disease per se? I suspect it would pick up your alcohol or average to moderately high alcohol intake because, again, it's got a fatty liver profile, they're high risk of diabetes, and their lipids are out, which, and they tend to have higher BMI, some of them. Would it, do you think it will enrich our skill at diagnosing all liver diseases? It was specifically built in the NASH population. We're well aware that in everyday life, there is a certain degree of overlap. Once you're driven more towards alcoholic liver disease, your phenotype becomes very different with malnutrition. So I think it will not look at the advanced, truly alcohol-driven liver disease patients. But in the overlap population, it could be. And again, we discussed cost-effectiveness. I mean, if you have a primary care physician and the patient is flagged, I mean, the first step could be to just recommend something to watch diet more closely or something like that. This could be a very simple lifestyle advice that somebody gives the patient saying, hey, hey, here's a flag up. Doesn't mean you're sick, but you know, you're in an at-risk liver 
disease category. So better watch your diet for a half a year and we'll come back and do some, some checks. A couple of things that caught my attention also, which I think will make it easier for clinicians. The similarity, if you will, of the two different cohorts suggests to me that at first glance, you may think that the NIDDK cohort may be more selectively ruled out for alcohol as a cofactor, not necessarily alcoholic liver disease, but certainly the combined alcohol, metabolic liver disease cohort. But the fact that this was really not a confounder when you look at this large Optum database, it suggests that maybe clinicians are not so bad at separating patients that have NASH or NAFO from patients who who have alcohol as a big component of their disease. And the second thing that I think is interesting about the AST being hierarchically such an important variable is that, you know, it provides a little bit more credence to the FAST score and using AST along with elastography using with FibroScan. And I think that'll make uh, advocates of the FAST score a little bit happier. Uh, I wonder if Louise has some comment about that, but uh, those are my observations. I think this suggests to me that that, you know, most metabolic liver disease that's related to fat is, in fact, probably just related to fatty liver. So, Louise, I want to use Chris's invitation to you as a transition into the third part of this discussion, which is now what? And I think the now what falls into two categories. One is, as Stephen is fond of saying, great papers yield tons of many, many, many lines of research. And you are, I can see five or six coming out of this, and I'm not even very good at that. And then second, there's the question that, that Chris asked you, Louise, which is, all right, fine, if we elevate the value of A, AST, we make uh, FAST look better as a as an advocate and as a treater, a line treater. What do you think this study? pretends for you and the kinds of things you do with thousand and patients like that? Well, I think it comes back to Jorn's point at the beginning. I think it's about clinical trials and it's about finding the best patient at the right time for clinical trials. I've seen a number of people that I'm scanning for a trial at the moment, but I'm seeing very much the COVID effect where a patient had said to me, I did a scan and I, I asked him, had he made any changes to his diet? And he said, no. And I said, are you sure about that? And he said, well, if I think about it, I'm having a little bit more delivery room than I was, maybe once a week. And then a couple of minutes later, it was maybe twice a week. Oh, and my children have introduced me to a brioche chicken burger bun every lunchtime. And in four months, he had sent his liver fat up from about 269 to 333. So we're probably going to see a rise in his AST. So I think being able to do that and pick out these right people for clinical trials who don't need a liver biopsy, I think in the COVID and post-COVID era, it's going to be really, really difficult because I think we're going to have to really spend taking attention, that finer detail. And I think this sort of research allows us to say that it is of extreme value. So if we do couple it with elastography, elastography is good in its own environment, but the more accurate we can make it, these are what we can also use in the real world. I think we can't use MRI, PDFA, for every patient in the real world. We can't biopsy every patient, but actually a lot of endocrinology clinics have FibroScan. They can do fast. They can actually enrich populations available for clinical trials from lots of diverse areas now. We don't see enough people in clinical trials with fatty liver disease, but we certainly don't see enough people of different ethnicities. And we've discussed it before that the majority of patients in clinical trials, non-ethnic, they're white, Caucasian, from a higher social 
socioeconomic background and educational background. That throws studies, but we can put FibroScan into Hispanic populations. We can we can really look, and it's data sets like this and AI studies that allow us to utilize the non-invasive toys that we've got in the real world. And it makes it relevant to patients because they can see it, they can relate to it. And I talk a lot about how a patient relates to the test that you're giving them. They don't relate to an algorithm. But as Jean said, if you can use this in your clinics to say, actually, you might have to watch your diet for a little while, that'll engage somebody for a period of time. They also want to see the proof. And it, it's not a mathematical algorithm, but for clinical trials, we do need to pick the right patients at the highest probability. And this sort of work really lends to that. There shouldn't really be a trial, and Stephen said it, that doesn't use elastography to screen. And I'd argue it, there shouldn't be any clinical trial we, if, that's not ruling out fatty liver disease, whether it's cardiology, whether or not it's rheumatology. I read a paper this week about normal ejection fraction in significant amount of patients with liver disease. So it's a real problem, and we need to screen out liver disease. And these sort of um, pieces of work are absolutely vital in that. I think there are several really useful insights that come out of the study. The first is, uh, as I alluded to at the very beginning, the fact that you can use a tool like this where the majority of the patients did not have a liver biopsy and really identified as being at risk for NASH or likely to have NASH will provide additional data that will help us to identify those patients who truly are at higher risk. I think this type of data obviously needs to be reproduced from another large data set uh, of well-characterized patients with a phenotype and then broadened out to other databases, whether it's from the VA or other systems databases to see whether it's durable and robust in other populations. Ewan, I, I had a question. I'm amazed I didn't think of until three minutes ago. We have a bunch of tests, FibroScan, for example, that are very good in negative predictive value, but not so good in positive predictive value. From the way that you've teed up the paper, it's pretty good at positive predictive value, which would say if you lay it up next to elastography, for example, you have a package that does a decent job on both sides of that equation. Absolutely. And something I haven't discussed yet, and uh, I'm, I'm happy you mentioned it. It's a little different setup. It's not designed to, to really rule out, but it's designed to, to highlight probable NASH condition. And and I think in that way, it's it's different from many tests we're currently seeing and applying. The combination with additional testing, it generates costs. So I think there has to be a rational to do that. But uh, by combining these strategies in, in, in a world where I could just pick my, my best test, this could be something to enrich. It, it, it enriches again, your and it increases your pretest probability. So I think then you have to look what you end up with, uh, with your follow-up or sequential test. But um, for sure, it impacts it uh, greatly, yes. And I, I noted also in the paper that you talked about sensitivity, but not specificity, which I think speaks to this exact point, right? That what you're doing is a better job of figuring out who you need to look at further, not who you don't need to look at further. Absolutely. And the, and then now what? I assume that you and others will find other databases or more work in these databases, as Chris and Louise have both pointed out, their issues around ethnicity, et cetera, uh, and, and that over time, these models will um, improve. This is pretty. This is pretty pretty darn good. But but they will they will improve, or we will understand better how to moderate them for different kinds of populations to the degree that's needed. Maybe the solution to the most cost effective solution to improving positive predictive value is going to lie in this kind of machine learning modeling, as compared to coming up with a whole bunch of tests. I mean, you talk to Sunil Hasmain as we did last week and well next week, and he'll tell you that 
the, the blood markers are going to get some really good PPVs within the next two to three years. But in advance of that, and maybe as a prior step to that, if, if you take machine learning, and that does a pretty good job of identifying who might be at risk, and then you put it up against something with good negative predictive value, that might be a cost-effective way to screen, or to identify and screen at the same time. Does, Chris, I see you nodding. Does that, does that work? I always get cheapish when I do these kinds of conversations because you guys treat patients and I never have. No, I think that's exactly what we need to do. And I think you've summarized it perfectly, which is you want to use an inexpensive, easily available, and relatively hassle-free tool to increase case finding of people at risk. So a, a sort of a, a, a less coarse filter, if you will. And then the next step will, of course, be the imaging-based or some other based modality, which is limited in terms of access, expertise, and cost. So if you have a test that, that has a higher sensitivity and can identify patients at risk, and then you move on to the test that has a better specificity and a greater positive predictive value with a good, you know, negative predictive value, then you've essentially done the job of eliminating those patients from further interventions who where there may be risk or cost involved, and then focus your efforts on those at greater likelihood of having uh, of having that. So I think that sequence is exactly what is informed by work such as this. But what surprised me was the fact that there appeared to be not much lost in terms of the robustness of this model uh, in going from a fairly well-curated, extremely well-phenotyped population of patients with a very high NASH prevalence, not just NAFL, but NASH prevalence, and then apply that to another cohort where, in fact, the majority of the patients did not undergo liver biopsy, and a large number of those patients were characterized as at risk using these criteria. But when you look at the number of patients who did have a biopsy, it's still, you know, over a thousand patients. And the fact that we with, I'm sure, limitations and caveats, which Jorn will acknowledge, and the paper does quite well in terms of its limitations, the fact that there's this level of transportability tells me that we can do pretty well with these models in terms of applying them to somewhat agnostic populations and not necessarily lose a huge amount in terms of uh, getting to very low sensitivity and pickup rates of patients at risk. So to me, that was the biggest takeaway. I think, obviously, the AST coming out so high was of great interest. But what struck me was when the team went to the larger data sets, you didn't gain too much additional information. So the smaller data set of 12 points makes that more applicable to a primary care and real life situation where you're not going to have to replace too much data to find that population with a high probability. And that to me keeps it real. It keeps it manageable because if we start to go to data sets of 24, people just are less likely to implement it. And I think it's finding patients and it's with the highest probability and that, that's the key. And I think that interested me um, from that and that surprised me. Yeah, so uh, as an author, uh, if, you're, if you're fortunate enough to be able to present, you're, uh, you're always uh, defensive. And I, and I guess uh, when you present to peers, in particular Chris and you guys, uh, you tend to uh, be very defensive. And you know, the comment that Chris made in, in, in saying that this is a real-life database that uh, allows some uncertainties uh, with regards to data capture, but it still separates it so well. Feedback to me that I think uh, it, it, it's it's darn good in, in identifying those uh, patients. And, you know, you don't want to overstate your findings as an author. That's always uh, difficult, in particular if you're talking to potential reviewers, but I think it was uh, developed robustly.
lastly, and it holds true, as Chris mentioned, in a, in a diverse, much more diverse, less well-characterized population with large data sets. So I'm looking forward to uh, see it perform in other ethnicities and, and of course, um, potentially other U.S. Uh, data sets. Bjorn, first, I want to thank you for that comment, because um, when I was asking questions about the statistics, it wasn't to challenge. Um, this all makes a considerable amount of sense to me. So um, if you felt challenged, then that wasn't the intention. The intention was to say, all right, so what can I glean from this that might not have been self-evident? You know, the AST over ALT imports protein. But the idea that each of those things on some level becomes a marker for a bigger issue. So then what are the big issues and what are the big issues not? I hadn't, as I said, really thought until today about this idea. And you showed me this paper, I think, a month ago. I hadn't really thought about today until in the context of improving positive predictive value with tools that are readily accessible today and don't have to go through FDA approval or any of those things. Because admittedly, we, we don't have agents yet, but we still need to treat patients. And the, if we can do it efficiently and effectively with reasonable confidence that we're talking to the right people, this is a good thing. So I had not thought before today about looking to these kinds of models for the positive piece of prediction, but that makes a considerable amount of sense to me and having seen your results even more so. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We are releasing two other conversations from this episode. Please join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion group to talk more or ask questions. Next week, we will post daily episodes Wednesday and Thursday evenings from the 4th Global Nash Congress, and we'll be back on our regular schedule the following week. I hope you'll join us next week for the Nash Congress. Until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.